Happy Tag Tuesday. Oh, happy Tag Tuesday. I just stole it from you. You got in on me. I did. We're doing this a little different now. Yeah. And we're just trying to figure it out. We're still trying to figure it out. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. This is Two Average Girls. You know what you came here for. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to tell you. No, no. You've already known. You're all our friends. That's right. We're loving it. The sultry tones of... Denise Cooper are just the let you last podcast you called it Novid when I really like that yeah it's not COVID it's Novid it is it. just the crud that everyone got mm-hmm. like we normally get and um now it seems to be a phenomenon everyone's like oh you have did you get your influenza shot and I'm like I didn't get the <laughs> why don't you mind your business I didn't get the regular <laughs> shot why would I get that one Stop I know I'm not getting me. that I'm not doing that uh. I, I don't I'm gonna get a cold and I'm gonna let it go through my body and as everyone knows who have been listening to us for the last couple of years, I get a cold and it goes to my chest. Mm-hmm. And then I become Denise After Dark. <laughs> it's two average girls at night. <laughs> at nighttime. No one wants to hear that, by the way, but that would be fun. It's a lot of snoring is what it is. It's a lot of stuff It's going a lot on. of Dateline of- left on the TV and me asleep. That's Seriously. Date li- that's, that's, that's two average girls after dark. Yeah, we've been together and <laughs> our big night is getting a big dessert, getting our jammies and fuzzy socks on eating the dessert in bed and watching a crime story that's right. of some sort how i mean come on how much better can it be i just thinking about that right now i just had a moment where i was just like oh i love that i know do you want to go get a hotel and you and i can just start early before we go to vegas i don't know that my husband would appreciate it i don't think your husband would appreciate it either i don't know does he have to know <laughs> honey we won't be home tomorrow night where are you gonna be we'll be down in the beach we'll go to the beach somewhere you don't think that your your husband and my husband would be like, well, I want to go. I want to go to the beach. What I don't know. Not if we're watching true crime and eating. He didn't care. Hagen Dazs in bed. Uh, that sounds like that's isn't that right up their alleys? Is that Friday night every night, every Friday night for us. No, Sunday through Monday. My husband and I don't watch any of the same TV shows. You're really? No, he does not like to watch anything with a storyline or plot. What does that leave? Golf. <laughs> hockey we watch a lot of football a lot of sports a lot of sports yeah, a lot of sports a lot of he's watching a lot of youtube lately what on youtube i don't know like I'm the not same watching type it. he's on his phone oh on his phone he doesn't pull it up on the smart no, tv no he'll just sit there he's watching a lot of afghan uh, not afghanistan uh iran no what oh world Zelensky. cup world cup Oh, yeah, we watched World Cup, too. Oh, you're talking Russia yeah, versus he, yeah. mm-hmm. oh. Ukraine. Like, he's into that. And he's, you know, News. he just he, he watches a lot of different things. So. Right. Nothing and against it. I just, he and I, he watches, he loves those shows where they sing and they're terrible and then they vote him off. Oh, The Voice. The Voice. Mm-hmm. We just finished the finale of The Voice. Yeah. I'm just in and out of the room. That's not my thing. Mm-hmm. I need to be like, no brain TV, sitting down. Okay, now I don't have to think about work. I don't have to think about what I need to do instead of watching TV. I'm just going to be like, oh, man, he did it. He killed her. I knew it. He's a loser. And then it turned out to be someone else. The handyman. No, no. 
that she was having an affair with. Yes. Whatever. And he drugged her. Of course he did. The, you touched on this though, and I want to go back to it. The World Cup phenomenon. Yes. I've never been interested in the World Cup in a way that I am this, this year for some reason. I don't know if it was televised, um, better. Maybe. More mainstream. Maybe. It's becoming more mainstream, I would say, for Americans. Yeah. Right? Because everywhere else in the world, this is their thing. Mm -hmm. For us, it's not, right? It's, no. The NFL. Well, That's what yeah. we do. We still call it soccer. Yes. I don't call it that anymore in the house. You know that it's football? It is football. Okay. But I, we watched just a lot of it mm-hmm. and it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating. It was. I, I started looking things up about it. Yeah. And, and the I mean, players. And the players. And it's, I do have to say it was a little annoying. They liked to do a lot of foul calls and they seem like babies like suck it up yeah it's a different thing it was weird it's, it's like a little bit different come on like they went to like acting school or something like no it's a you tripped okay listen it's a lot of flopping you, you do a lot of over the top flopping yeah I just I, that was weird to me but i don't know a lot about it and i thought it was fun well by the time this airs the world cup will have been over by months probably a month or e- mm-hmm. easily but i do have to let i'm just going to put this down on tape as we say okay and see what happens um Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little something that is a secret in my family. Every time my husband and I, and son sometimes, have traveled, and it's been a World Cup year, whatever country we're in, they win the World Cup. Really? We were in France when France won the World Cup. Really? We were in Portugal. We were, I mean, we've been in all of these places. The year that they won. The year that they won. So where did you go this year? Germany. Well, no, that's, that's the thing that, that I, if it had have been Germany getting to the finals, I would have been like, see, we have the magic touch. We're in the country when it happens. Oh, you needed to be there. We had to be in the country. Get mm. this. My sweet niece, Whitney is in Argentina. Oh my <gasps> God. What? Is it happening? Do you think it's your family? Like maybe you could guys be. could put it out there could and be. then you could start getting, they hire could, us. Th- you're the good luck charm. We'll come to your country. If Argentina wins... It's going to be, mm-hmm. we'll see. Okay. We'll see what happens. I just wanted to let you know. Just, I had no just idea. Just between you and me. You have a secret, you have another superpower. It's a superpower I don't want, Why? but I'm happy to have. No, I, think I you did, should. I didn't chase after that superpower. No, no, no. But you, you don't know? chase after any superpowers. That's just why they're super. Is that why? Yes, they just happen. I'm glad you explained it to me. Look at Because Spider-Man didn't want his superpowers. No, neither did. Happened. Yeah, no, neither does Batman. Mm. None of them want it. Okay. They just have it. All right. Well, that that's it then. You have it. You have I, two or I three. I apparently have it. I have none, but you have. A oh, couple. you have so many. What is my superpower? We'll get to that next time. Okay. Okay. Our Today, guest is really, literally, like, <laughs> why did I agree to be here? <laughs> We're so glad you're here. <laughs> Welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. Katie is a registered dietitian, and the minute you came in, we're like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? I, I think it could probably mean a bunch of different things depending on your approach and your business and what does it mean in your life? Hmm. <clears throat> Being a registered dietitian to me means helping people make peace with food and be able to eat in a way that allows them to focus on their passions and focus on relationships and eat in a way that helps them feel mentally and physically well. And this is your job. This is my job. Where I'm so lucky. Are you? 
<laughs> I'm glad you feel that way about it. Where do you, do you work um, in conjunction with a hospital or where do you work? So right now I work in private practice mm-hmm. in Tustin mm-hmm. and I have a little office that's about a mile from my house Nice. and I see adolescents, I see kids, I see adults, I see families and I work in the field of eating disorders, mm-hmm. which means I'm in contact with a lot of hospitals and treatment centers. Um, yeah. Do you have schools call you up about that kind of thing? Yes, a lot of schools, a lot of elementary schools, colleges. Mm. What's the, what is the biggest um, eating disorder that you're, we're dealing with right now that you're that just you're seeing? Right. Well, I would say all different types of eating disorders are still happening. Mm. Um, I think the the biggest realization that people are coming to now is that eating disorders cannot be seen by the eye and that only 6% of people look like the stereotypical eating disorder that one would think. And eating disorders are a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. So lately I've been seeing an eating disorder that's actually not in the DSM yet, but it's called orthorexia, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is the, instead of the desire to be thin at all costs, it is the desire to be healthy at all costs. And so somebody may have really good intentions when they start out on eating certain types of foods or maybe they start limiting a couple different types of things but the list very very slowly becomes so little that they're not eating enough food in general to be able to maintain a healthy body so it's called orthorexia orthorexia the obsession with health the in that it's almost like an oxymoron to me right because the obsession with health that seems like a good thing absolutely but anything that's good in moderation is good but anything to the extreme i guess is the problem absolutely yeah so give us an example of somebody that would have orthorexia so like symptomatically yeah, what like, would how would yeah, that present what would, itself what would that how could we identify ourselves if we are sure. that way some main things to look for would be how often are you thinking about food so what percentage of the day are you thinking about food When you grocery shop, are you looking at every single label? When you grocery shop, are you looking at calories, fat grams, sugar grams? Uh, I think in the olden days, people were looking more at calories and fat grams. That was how it was when I grew up. Right. And now it's looking at grams of sugar or is this organic? It is a fear to eat something that is not organic. Mm. It is a... It produces guilt, stress, anxiety, and sometimes superiority when choosing a food that somebody deems as, and I hate this word, but I'll say it, quote unquote, clean, um, because there is actually no definition of what, quote unquote, clean eating is. Um, It is a dietitian's worst nightmare when we hear that word. But somebody that talks a lot about, oh, I don't eat that. And it's not for any other, you know, health purpose. When I'm giving presentations, I like to start off with identifying the word diet culture and the word wellness culture. Mm-hmm. So imagine that we are all little fish swimming in in, in water mm-hmm. and diet culture is the water we swim in. So diet culture is not just going on diets um, or anything like that. Diet culture is this system of beliefs that values thinness over health mm-hmm. and it equates health with moral virtue right wellness culture kind of came in through the back door so it's in disguise but it's still diet culture because if you ask anybody hey would you still continue eating this quote-unquote healthy way if it didn't produce 
weight loss yeah. or if your body actually gained weight during this time, mm-hmm. people, most people would say, no, I wouldn't continue this. So wellness culture puts foods in a hierarchy. Wellness culture says these foods on the top of the list, like the quote unquote clean, organic fruits and vegetables, these are morally better. And you are a better person for eating these foods because clearly this means that you care about your health. And then on the bottom of the hierarchy is, who knows, uh, any quote unquote processed foods, because these are the words that people use now, any Oreo. And Mm. my God, you are going to hell for eating these foods and you're killing yourself. I love Oreos. So. (laughs) Just saying. I am having like stress as you're talking about, because everyone's had that conversation with some random person that you don't know who wants to talk to you about their, their healthy eating habits and their CrossFit. You know, it's like, I don't care. I mean, I'd like to get some information from you, but the approach is you're so moralistically elite that I don't understand what just happened standing here in line at the gap, you know, or wherever I'm at. You know, anthropology was actually where it happened, uh, where someone was, you know, having this conversation because they were feeding their child organic fruit roll up. And they had made it themselves. And I made oh, a wow. comment like, whoa, that's so cool. That was the wrong thing to say. That's the wrong thing to say. Um, because she let me know how cool it was. Anyway, it was it's all very in an effort to put you down. Yeah. I mean, we live in this culture now that definitely moralizes food. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and people feel like better or worse people for eating certain types of foods or who lifestyles have bodies that are um in the hierarchy they're at the lower end of the totem pole and ultimately when i talk to my clients patients if you will we talk about how who you are is not about what you eat or what your body looks like it's about your morals and your values and how you live your life is there a certain age group that falls victim to that yes so adolescents uh between ages 11 and 14 Mm. are right at that stage where they are forming their identity Mm-hmm. And they're also at the stage where at school they're noticing who's doing what, who's wearing what. They're trying to fit in mm. at the same time as they are supposed to be figuring out who their identity is, maybe separate from their family. Yeah. And with our current diet culture where there are certain bodies that are glorified mm-hmm. and certain bodies that are not treated well mm-hmm. and certain foods that people are told if you eat this – you are going to have this type of life. If you look like this, you're going to have this type of life. If you call yourself, quote unquote, vegan, Mm -hmm. you are no longer you. You are, quote unquote, vegan, Mm. which is actually really hard to come out of. When somebody builds their identity based on the type of food they eat, and they do like to tell people about it, Uh or the way that their body looks, or the way that they work out, it is a false sense of identity. Yeah. Because those things don't make us who we are. And then they're in they're in deep trouble as right. time goes on. And that is more consistent with somebody developing disordered eating, which is a mental health issue. Is there a gender that is more apt to that? I think at this point I am seeing all genders in my office. Men and women. Absolutely. Both. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Because that um As I said before we started this podcast, we talked about I was a teenager in the 80s, and that's when the whole anorexia revolution really came to the fore. It was always around. But now we've we had like uh, after school specials about bulimia and uh, you know books that we were reading, you know, Judy Bloom. Yes, they were talking about all of these anorexia nervosa. We had 
a special health yeah. class on it. Yes. Right? So did we, yes. Yeah. And I always was like, it was it was so foreign to me. And like, who's this for? I don't understand who this is for. Well, then we had a, a boy in our high school who got, who had anorexia. And oh man, it was like, it was sort of, there were a lot of conversations about it because it was unique to the fact that this was happening to a boy. This was up until that time in my small little town was female specific. But it's interesting that you're saying this is very much across all genders. Absolutely. And But 11 to 14 year olds, they're the ones who fall prey to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also eating disorders can come around at any point in your life. A lot of times there is a genetic component to it. So people who maybe are born with perfectionism or people who are born with anxiety or depression, people who have who have had trauma are more likely to potentially develop disordered eating. Uh, we all live in diet culture, yet there are there are people who never develop an eating disorder. Right. I would say that there are a lot of people that do have disordered eating and maybe they don't realize it. Mm. What would that look like if it's not at the next level where there's a diagnosis, so to speak? Right. Any, <clears throat> actually, I'll start with just defining what a healthy relationship to food might look like. A mm-hmm. uh, healthy relationship to food, humans are supposed to enjoy food. Mm-hmm. We are supposed to seek it out because it literally keeps us alive. And so anytime somebody is feeling guilt or shame or stress around eating, that is disordered. Mm -hmm. Those are not part of a healthy relationship to food. Mm -hmm. What is normal is to watch little kids eat. Kids are so joyful when they eat. Mm -hmm. They eat because it tastes good. They eat to fill their bodies up. They enjoy eating and they feel good about eating. Mm -hmm. Yet we live in this diet culture that tells us, oh no, don't like food too much because what would that say about you? Right? (laughs) Which is so bogus. Yeah. So healthy relationship to food, knowing how to grocery shop, knowing how to cook some foods for yourself, listening to your internal hunger Mm. and fullness cues. There Mm. you go. That's a toughie. That's a, we're not, we're not used to that. No. Well, and that's the interesting part I love about my job is because we get to do a lot of human physiology, which says, when a human mammal is born, we are all born with what's called interoceptive awareness. Okay. So it is that idea of an internal feeling that tells us you're getting tired. And then a life skill is knowing then how to put yourself to sleep, mm-hmm. feeling your bladder fill up mm-hmm. and recognizing I need to go relieve my bladder. Right. Feeling hunger and going toward food and filling yourself up until you feel nice and satisfied and you've had enough. So all most humans are born with this ability. Sometimes there's there are people who maybe ha- lack a little bit of that interoceptive awareness, mm-hmm. but certainly over the years kids lose that when for example parents might say you need to take three more bites and then you can leave the table. Oh. And what does that child think? Oh gosh, well maybe I don't know my yeah. hunger as much as I thought I did or maybe right. I can't trust my body. Right. Or they hear, you know, watching the news, diabetes. And yeah. if, and if you if, if you eat this, you're going to become diabetic. And then they think, "Oh my goodness, maybe I shouldn't eat these type of foods." Right. So over the years, it's very very common for kids to lose that ability to regulate hunger and fullness. Mm-hmm. And then as they grow older and they become adults, it's even more foreign and in this culture we're taught to look externally yeah. to know how to eat mm. as opposed to internally oh that's interesting yes. looking externally to know how to eat what say, tell tell me more about that so externally would be 
let me look on Google at what the best diet is to follow to know how to be quote unquote healthy. Okay. Instead of being able to be in tune to your own body to know these are the type of foods I prefer. Mm -hmm. These are the type of foods that make me feel good. Most of the eating for adolescents is being driven by somebody that's over their eating over them, right? Their parents are establishing an eating plan, whether it's a plan or not, they're feeding them. How do you deal with all of this in a family setting? Right. So as you're saying this, I'm thinking my middle schooler now is quite in charge of what she orders at school. Okay. And so I, as middle school approaches, I'm not as in charge of what the kids are eating. However, I do still provide breakfast. So when I'm working with families, and everybody obviously has different means. So mm-hmm. everybody, um, these are social determinants of health, right? Do you ever talk about that on the podcast, social determinants of health? Um, well, we talked a little bit about how, you know, people in the inner cities or people who are struggling financially mm-hmm. are not going to have access or the ability to get absolutely the same kinds of foods and even have the education that they need to know what the good kind of foods are. Absolutely. And you may have a child that's a picky eater and that doesn't mm-hmm. like those quote unquote foods that are supposed to have more nutrition in them. That's right. So in working with families at the base level, we talk about ideally in a perfect world, consistent, adequate feeding of satisfying variety of foods. And that goes for adults, kids, anybody in between. Mm -hmm. So when I work with families, we talk about something called the division of responsibility, which is actually a term uh, by Ellen Satter, who is a registered dietitian, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. And her whole life has been dedicated to research on how to raise kids who have healthy relationships to food. So when families come in, we talk about this division of responsibility where parents have a role and kids have a role. Mm -hmm. And when you crossover roles is when nutrition fails. So parents' role is to provide their family with adequate food Mm -hmm. in the form of meals and snacks every two to three hours throughout the day. Now, that's a really big job. Yeah, it is. And we'll just leave it at that. That's a really big job. Ideally, parents are serving a carbohydrate source, a protein source, a fat source, fruits and vegetables if they have access to them. Mm -hmm. And they're serving that in intervals. And then the kid's job is to decide how much food is going to fill them up and in what order to eat and how many bites to take. And they get to decide when their tummy says, I've had enough, when their tummy says, I would like some more. And the parent's job is to instill trust. Because like I said, we are born with that ability to regulate hunger and fullness. Mm-hmm. And if parents can give their kids that, that trust, they tend to grow up into more competent eating adults and they are more aware of what types of food make them feel good mm-hmm. and which types don't right. and how much. And, and then they grow beautifully into whatever their genetically predetermined body is supposed to be. Aha. Mm-hmm. I like the way you said that because it's not it's not then a recipe for you're going to be 100 pounds or whatever, you know, the number is. You're still going, you're still fighting with you still have a relationship with the genetics, you know? Absolutely. There's no, there's no overcoming that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about the kid though? That's like, all I want to eat is white pasta. And I, you can set this in front of me. I know somebody like that. I, I know an adult who I knew as a child is, who is like that. All he would eat is uh, top ramen. Right. What do you, do you know my husband? (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) What do you say to the parents who are at their wits end? 
Right. Well, I just had a phone conversation with someone who I'll meet with next week about this. So there is an age between the ages of two years old and eight where kids are, it's called um, food neophobic, where they are going through a brain process where they are supposed to start noticing things in food that they never did before. Oh, So under age two, <laughs> babies, yeah. they pretty much eat whatever you put in front of them sure. because their brains haven't developed yet. Mm-hmm. But around age two, they start going through this advanced brain development where they might see an herb, a green herb, and think, I can't eat it. Why did you put this in my food? And you think, I've had that happen with my granddaughter. Yes. I've been serving you this your whole life. (laughs) And you never noticed it. (laughs) Exactly. So there was a purpose for it, which really at this point no longer serves us. And that is a a typical part of moving through the ages um, with food. What's not typical is fear to put something in their mouth. So there is another eating disorder that I'm seeing a lot lately called ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is under the umbrella of anxiety, maybe some OCD, maybe a kiddo who has choked and is fearful of swallowing, maybe a kiddo who had the stomach flu and didn't want to throw up and now associates eating with throw up, Um, maybe a kiddo who had um, braces put on and it's really painful to eat, but then they kind of go along and don't eat enough, and then it just in general becomes painful to eat. So ARFID is very different than just typical picky eating, where it's uh, one of my kids is like that, and I might put it on the plate, and she'll say, this really isn't what I want, and I'll say, well, this is what we're having tonight, and she can you know, eat enough of it to feel full enough to go to bed, but it's definitely not her favorite. Mm. Then there is a child that has ARFID or an adult, Adults and children can have ARFID where it feels like somebody could be putting dog poop in front of you and saying, come on, Anne, this tastes so good. Come on. I like it. Why don't you try it? And they are repulsed. Um, They have anxiety that comes up. They'll they'll throw it back up again. So this is something completely different. So the approach, though, is to, in family meals, eliminate all pressure. Mm. trying not to glorify another child at the table. Look at your brother. He eats it. Come on. Do it for mommy. (laughs) These these are just things now that we know. You're not going to be a big girl if you don't eat your food. Absolutely. I do that all the time with my granddaughter. Absolutely. So the less pressure that we can put on kids, the research shows that the more likely, as time goes on, that they are intrinsically able to adapt to eating more more diverse foods but the more pressure we put on them or the more we bribe them Uh if you eat this you can have this m&m later right the less likely that they will eat that food long term Mm -hmm. so if you think about if there was ever a food that your parents made you sit at the table to eat cottage cheese what is your relationship like Mm -hmm. now to that food cook carrots most people will say I hate that food. I never want to see that food. I don't want to smell that food. Mm -hmm. So what we look at when I'm talking to families is instant gratification. So what is your goal at tonight's meal? They really want to see their kids, grandkids eat that broccoli. It feels so good when you see your kids eat. It does. It it should feel good. Right. Long term, you want them to gravitate toward it on their own. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do that is by eliminating pressure and eliminating stress at the table. When somebody is stressed at the eating table, everybody else can feel it. Yep. Yeah. And that ruins anyone's ability to have that peaceful 
enjoy enjoyable meal. So you have a five-year-old. They only want to eat white pasta with butter and Parmesan cheese, no fruits and vegetables, very little. How do you, you're making meal and it is, I don't know, something else. It's chicken and broccoli and watermelon. And those three foods are not going to be eaten. Yes. So if if you're doing true Ellen Satter division of responsibility, Ellen has this quote that is being courteous without catering. So if the goal is long-term raising a competent eater, what you want to be mindful of when serving meals is making sure that there is something on the plate that they'll eat. That that child typically likes, okay. which can be an oxymoron because mm-hmm. – especially with toddlers, they go in and out of liking things every other day. But in your head, you can think, okay, I know they like a roll with butter. So I'm going to have that as a side. And we're also going to serve foods that we eventually want our kids to eat. Mm -hmm. So we serve preferred foods along with the others. And depending on the kid, sometimes they'll accept it on their plate, but sometimes that feels like too much pressure. And so in a perfect world, I sometimes don't do this because it's a lot of dishes, serving things family style and mm. allowing them to take their own, take their own oh. and not having an agenda in your head of how much food you think they should be eating because their growth is all over the place. And there are so many variations of normal in terms of children's growth and appetite. Mm-hmm. So what's normal, we have small kids that have small appetites. Mm-hmm. We have small kids that have large appetites. We have large kids that have small appetites. And we have large kids that have large appetites. And the two that are typically red flagged in our culture or with pediatricians and parents, the small kid with the small appetite, everybody's very worried. Mm-hmm. Why are you not eating more? So much right. pressure. And what happens when we pressure kids to eat is that they eat less. And then you have the child who's in a large body naturally – and they also have a large appetite. And parents and pediatrician, they are worried. You are just eating way too much. And guess what happens when you try to take away food mm. from a child that you think is eating too much? Mm. They, they eat will more. eat more in secret. Yep. They will hide it. You yep. will find it in their bedroom. They will feel guilt. They will feel shame. And they will lose body trust on both sides. So I think this information is helpful for any type of person around kids that yeah. will be eating with them, feeding them. What do you do, though, when you have a five-year-old that will only eat the pasta and then you put out this beautiful meal, whatever, and you've got the rolls and that kid just puts away uh, three rolls with butter and that's it? Do you just let that happen? Good question. (laughs) Good question. It's a very common question. So when when we look at research on kids and feeding, um, kids make up their nutrition in a week. They don't make it up in a day and they don't make it up in a meal. So let me think about a study. I'm not going to remember the name of the study, Mm -hmm. but it was done in an orphanage, and I Mm -hmm. believe it was done in the 1930s. And imagine all these little kids sitting Mm -hmm. there at their their tables, and there's researchers with their notepads, and the researcher's job is to feed these children three meals a day and and three snacks at intervals. And they're going to put on their little table carbohydrates, proteins, fats, fruits, vegetables, and they are not going to say a word. And if a little kid says, I'm done, they just mark on their notepad, this is the percentage that they ate. If they say, I want more potatoes, but they haven't touched their broccoli, they haven't touched their chicken, and they just want buttered potatoes, they're going to just jot that down in their note. What we have found, hundreds of studies on, on feeding kids, is that kids make up their caloric intake in a day 
if fed the food but left alone. Mm -hmm. They make up their nutrition intake in a week. So some meals looked sparse. Some meals looked carbohydrate heavy. Some meals looked fat heavy. Some meals looked fruit heavy. Some days looked protein heavy. But after a week, on average, they were all able to meet their nutritional needs. So they're going to find what they need and eat it. You have to offer it. You have to offer it. You have to put it on the table. So what doesn't help, which I see a lot of parents sometimes fall into this, is where, and obviously there's always different scenarios, Mm -hmm. but in general, if a parent thinks or a caregiver thinks they're not going to eat this, so I'm not going to serve it, Mm. then you accidentally perpetuate the issue because if they never have the opportunity, right. then, then they, they don't have the opportunity. It's not in front of them. They may not eat it. Mm-hmm. And also what people love to do is say they do one day decide to try something. Worst thing you can do is applaud them. Yeah. I'm <laughs> so proud want. of you. Oh. I know. It's the opposite of what you think. Yeah. It is the opposite of what you think. Right. Also, just like we talked about different appetites and bodies, there is a spectrum of eating personalities. As humans, we are all supposed to be very different, right? In our body shapes and sizes, that is meant to be in our eating styles. Mm -hmm. So some people tend to be on one far end where they are extremely adventurous, and that is normal for them. In our culture, that is praised. Yay! Just like social people are praised, right? And introverts are not. so on one of the spectrum, you have very adventurous eaters. They'll, they'll eat anything. They're foodies. They love to taste new textures. They like spice. They like all different types of food. Zero anxiety about trying anything new. Mm-hmm. Then on the way other end of the spectrum, you have eaters who maybe aren't that interested in food. When they do eat food, if you make them a quesadilla and it has brown burnt spots, right. that is no longer a quesadilla that they would like be, <laughs> to be putting in their mouth, right? Yep. They aren't that interested. These are the people that might say, oh, I wish I could just be, you know, hooked up to an IV and not have to worry about it. <laughs> um, they don't really sense hunger. Fullness can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable. They really look at the aesthetic part of the food. It has to look appealing to them Mm -hmm. for them to want to eat it. Mm -hmm. And they might, you know, maybe not have as many foods that they enjoy eating. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working with families and adults, I always talk about this, that there's variations of normal. And what we don't want to do is say one is good and one is bad, that this is all part of typical eating personalities. It's hard as a parent. Absolutely. And you make a really good point about (sighs) parenting and what makes us feel like good parents Mm -hmm. or bad parents. And parents feel like bad parents if their kids are picky eaters. Yeah, that's not their fault. However, Mm -hmm. um, taste preferences, taste buds, those are genetic. So a lot of times if parents come in and they say, you know, little Johnny here is not eating his peas, I will ask those parents first question, which one of you was a picky eater? (laughs) And 90% of the time, one of them will say, oh, I was and I still am. Or I, around college, decided that I was going to try new things and I was going to eat vegetables, but I never liked them. And my, you know, the same thing. Yeah. So I think education mm-hmm. for parents and caregivers and just knowing that what's normal and what to be worried about mm-hmm. and um yeah, yeah. As, well as a dietitian though it sounds to me you are part family therapist right food I mean, therapy well food therapy yes but I, ha- I have a friend who's got three kids 
And all three kids are very picky eaters. That's sort of how they've coined it. I look at it a little differently. It's like this is a parenting issue and not a food issue. And so my friend ends up making four separate meals for dinner. And Denise is over here shaking her head and I rolling her and I'm the same thing. I just vehemently, I'm just like, cut it out. But, you know, her kids are kind of young. They're, you know, freshman in high school, kind of on the way down. And so she makes a meal for her and her husband and then three other meals because they, they're, they're picky. Oh, she won't eat this. Oh, he won't eat that. You must have people who come in with that situation. What do you say? So I here's just my first thought when you're talking about that is that we don't know till we know. So we don't know people's food issues. We don't know their story. We uh-huh. don't know what's happening in the home. We don't know. We only know what we know, right? right? So I'm lucky enough that when families come into my office, I get to ask all the questions and figure out, you know, what is what is driving this? Because okay. it's not always a one-size-fits-all. We can't blame parents. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that all, most parents um, really mean well. Mm-hmm. And so... I guess we just don't know until we know. So if a family that like that came into my office, I would be asking a lot more questions. So yeah. I always ask about feeding since birth, right. um, any lip tongue ties, any oh. receding jaw, any anxiety, any OCD, any oh. depression. I mean, there's so any many trauma that happened. So at, many reasons yeah. why people would do that. It's it's not always so simple. Oh. Very rarely is it that simple that the parent is just doing something wrong. You know, right. and just being really curious without judgment. Right. That's why I'm not a dietitian. <laughs> I'm just filled with judgment. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, you're doing it wrong. There's some other reasons you're not a dietitian. <laughs> I'm just going to say. As I stick another chicken McNugget in as my As I mouth. looked in your car when I was walking up the walkway. <laughs> Don't rat me out. I had a, I have a bag of Captain, Captain Crunch. Crunch sitting just, in my. Just the, hanging out in your car. She likes just to, dry cereal. She, she mm, will just take it's cereal. A it's a, it's her, it's her That's eating. Great. It's her eating thing. It I'm not going to judge. Yeah. We're not here to judge. We're just simply saying. I feel judged. You don't. I, it's endearing <laughs> to me care. as your friend. I love it. It's also one of those things where it's a, you know, it might be an anxiety release of some sort. And I'm just now identifying it. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't. should talk to Katie. I, Katie and I need to have a conversation <clears throat> about Captain Crunch and what he does for my life. But it is a, it's, it's a, it's a snack situation. And I, I wonder how many other people are. I wonder if there's a DSM for this. A DSM? The DSM, the Diagnostic oh, Manual yeah. for... Yeah, yeah. For the, for the cereal Maybe. addiction. Is there a snacking situation, though, where people come in and it's snack-specific? Like, I won't eat a big meal. All I'll do is snack all day. So, yeah, different type of eating personalities. You might be a grazer. That might be... I'm a grazer. I just you talked to someone this morning about when I, before I came in here about... Um, different people's circadian rhythms. And mm-hmm. so some people who like to stay up really late and are night owls just naturally, mm-hmm. they tend to not be morning people. And they tend to have this idea that if they eat something right when they wake up, that they're just not going to feel well. Yeah. And that is a thing. That's yeah. real. You know, yeah. and we hear all the time, oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And you have to eat breakfast or you're not healthy. Um, and so I always consider somebody else's really their truth right so I'm the expert in food and you're the expert of your body and you're the expert of your body and if I'm doing my job correctly where I'm helping you figure out what works best for your body right right? you never want to be eating something that you don't like just because someone said oh it's nutritious or Mm -hmm. oh you know you're Mm -hmm. gonna fly to heaven right Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that would be really good if you found that food. Let me know. Um, so yeah, there's people that are just natural grazers. They don't, 
they don't like to eat so much. Maybe they're kind of even slow eaters. They like to snack here and there. Fine. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that like meals. There's people that just like bigger meals. They like to feel fuller. There's so many different eating styles, eating personalities that all can be healthy yeah. If it's working for somebody. By working, I don't mean you look a certain way. Yeah. By working, I just mean you have a peaceful relationship to food. I think that is so important because it, still, even in this age where all the information is available to us on our phone for anything we possibly need, there is still this conception, a misconception, that it should be a one-size-fit-all. Absolutely. You should do keto. You'll Then you'll be popular. Absolutely. Or whatever, you know? Well, and you bring up a really good point. So... One of the most dangerous myths that I tell adolescents about diet culture is that they give the, it gives this message, this overall message, remember, that we're swimming in, that if you eat a certain way and you exercise a certain way, that you're going to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that if you look a certain way, that your life is going to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And we, as adults, I think, have mm-hmm. more of you know life to show us that bad and good things happen no to matter what. people of all different shape sizes or what you eat. <clears throat> but that is a really dangerous myth because we have a lot of teens looking at TikTok, what I eat in a day, and looking at this body that they think they want, mm-hmm. which probably is genetic, or they might be seeing me for an eating disorder, which yeah. a lot of influencers are. They're marketing based on their genetic body type, and they are promoting this is what you need to eat to look like me. And again, we're looking externally versus well, what works for me? Yeah. What work? What be, again? Working. I think people have to change their version of what works for me means to how do I have energy? How you know what helps me sleep? If you don't eat carbohydrates because you're doing a ketogenic diet, which by the way, the origin was for little kids who have epilepsy, who was who are untreated with medication, and that was what the ketogenic diet was supposed to be for. But now people are using it for weight loss. <laughs> it is very difficult to sleep. You have extremely mm. bad breath. Yeah. Over. Yeah time it does increase triglycerides cholesterol yeah interesting so i also want to just kind of point or put in here that during um i have a long history of a, a lot of dieters in my family lots of dieters which i think again if you were around in the 80s yep. that that was just the thing to do because at the Weight time watchers. it was what the scale says mm-hmm. determines what your health is and now we know that that is just not true mm-hmm. um which is great that we're moving away from that but when i was uh at cal state long beach i had to read a book for my curriculum called intuitive eating and i do want you to tag this at the end oh, evelyn yeah. triboli and elise resch are both dietitians and they wrote the book in the early 90s and it's just kind of coming back where they're the cool kids it's the popular book because like you said the new generations they're looking for something different they don't want to do weight watchers they don't mm-hmm. want to do jenny craig they mm-hmm. don't want to do keto they don't want to do intermittent fasting they don't want you know all these th- external things telling people how they should or shouldn't be eating are actually ruining people's health and mm-hmm. ruining their relationship to their bodies and food Okay, so intuitive eating is a book. Um, it's ten principles, and it's really a self care plan. And um, I've heard of it. Yeah, so it's wonderful. Um, and it, anyways, it changed my life. And I thought this is exactly what I was looking for, and this is what I would want to help other people find is being empowered, not mm-hmm. in control of your food or out of control with your food, but empowered mm-hmm. and really developing that self trust and the truth of what you know feels good to you. Is there any kind of advice or steps that people can take to at least move forward to a a place where they can maybe get control of this? Absolutely. So I would absolutely recommend that people read the Intuitive Eating book. It's an easy to read book. 
And then they also have a workbook where mm-hmm. you can read a segment and then you can journal and answer the questions about your daily life and eating. Mm-hmm. I would say that most adults that come into my practice that feel like they have a quote unquote food addiction have been on a diet mm-hmm. and they definitely label certain foods as good and certain foods as bad. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when they're following their quote unquote diet, they are not eating the quote unquote bad foods and they are um, restricting those foods. And then they end up when they're off their diet, eating those foods and feeling guilt and feeling shame and feeling like I must be out of control around food. So the very first step would be to notice if you are judging foods as good or bad, because in my in my eyes, and what I've seen help and what I've seen in the research is that when you label foods as good or bad, especially for kids, you tend to feel good or bad about yourself for eating them. And mm-hmm. that can ruin your quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so instead of using those words, which by the way, if it's moldy, it's bad. If it's expired, it's bad. If you step on it in the mud and we're past the five second rule, it's bad. That's fine. <laughs> um, otherwise, there's certain ways of saying <clears throat> absolutely. Good and, bad. Yeah. and certainly some foods have more nutrition and some foods have less. That is, that is a truth. Yeah. Um, Um, but food is supposed to be enjoyed. We're supposed to eat food in, in holiday, in community, in celebrations. Food is not just fuel. Mm. And anyone who tells you that, don't listen, run away. Um, (laughs) food is so much more than that. So Mm. I would first recommend somebody not labeling food as good or bad. Then I would say that eating those consistent, adequate meals and snacks is huge because a lot of times people will skip meals. And Mm -hmm. when you skip meals, it takes more food to fill you up when you Mm -hmm. start eating again. And you're usually eating really bad stuff because you're just getting whatever you can get your hands on. Moldy stuff. Whatever. Fast food. Just going to going in there and finding the Oreos and just like going, okay, three or four of these are going to make me feel better. Physiologically, if somebody has not eaten in many, many hours, Mm -hmm. the brain is so smart that it will drive you toward foods that are the most calorically quick and rich, which tend to be more sugar, carbohydrate, fat foods. And again, we're not gonna we're not gonna judge that. We're just gonna notice that those are the foods I crave when I haven't eaten in many hours. I, I forgot to mention this piece when we're doing family feeding. Yeah. When the parents are offering the carbohydrate, the protein, and the fat, that right there is the main meal. And then we add in fruits and vegetables. Those are not supposed to be a meal or even a snack. They can be part of a meal or a snack. But peppers and I forget what else you said, grapes, Mm -hmm. those wouldn't fill up a rabbit. So your body needs consistent carbohydrates, proteins, Mm. and fats. Those are called macronutrients. Micronutrients are fruits and vegetables. Now, if you Google what healthy eating is, it's going to tell you to eat just the, the exact snack that you said. But what I've seen and what I know from studying nutrition and physiology is that the human body needs starches, proteins, and fats consistently throughout the day in order to keep the energy up and to keep that from happening. So when you say somebody is like, I'm, I'm eating a low-carb diet or no carbs, I'm basically yeah. cutting out all my carbs, mm-hmm. that's almost a recipe for yo-yoing almost a hundred percent and actually that's where you know we're moving from dieting as a means of reaching health to actually working on somebody's health promoting behaviors to increase health we know now that 98 percent of people who go on diets gain weight and they gain more weight than before the diet and so even if diets promoted health which they don't or intentional weight loss 
promoted health, um, again, which they don't, um, we know that 98% of the time people gain the weight back. So it's just not an efficient or ethical way to help somebody, quote unquote, become healthy. So um, part of what I do in my practice is I work under the model of it's called health at every size. It doesn't mean that every person at every size is healthy. Mm -hmm. It is that if somebody is interested in gaining health, Mm -hmm. that we find access. So we find them access to in your life, in the way that in the way that you're living now, what are things that are important to you? And can we find health behaviors that would promote health instead of looking for weight changes to promote health? Because we know that typically those are not yeah. helpful or lasting. I don't like to, to use the words overweight. Mm. Okay. Um, I'll explain it for kids and I'll explain it for adults. So with kids, uh, they go to the pediatrician every year and we check what their height is and what their weight is and they're plotted on a growth chart. Mm-hmm. So the growth chart you know, starts at one and then, you know, ends in the hundreds. There are supposed to be bodies all along the growth chart. Kids are supposed to be growing into adults that are all along that growth chart. Right. Okay. So body diversity is real. It's a purpose, not a mistake. Yeah. Say that again. Body diversity is on purpose. It is not a mistake. Right. So when pediatricians say your child is quote unquote overweight, what I think of, and somehow dietitians were taught to read the growth chart different than pediatricians, which <laughs> we all need to get on the same page. Yeah, exactly. But it's good for parents to know this going into the appointment. What that means is we're comparing all kids to the 50th percentile, mm-hmm. which just doesn't make any sense. Right. That, okay, so as adults, genetically, we are all supposed to be different weights, shapes, and sizes. Mm -hmm. Everybody metabolizes food differently. Mm -hmm. So I know people like to say, and they understand that if you fed everybody the same and you moved their body the same, that they would all look differently. I think people have now like finally accepted that, that, you know, genetics uh, control our skin elasticity and all these different things. Right. Um, Also, if you did that, people would metabolize food differently. People have different metabolic rates. People Mm -hmm. have different ways that their, you know, liver and kidney and whatnot um, metabolizes food. So if someone called in and they said, I feel like I'm overweight, Mm -hmm. I want to be healthy, I would tell them that I cannot help you with intentional weight loss, but tell me what you're looking for. So if someone says, I would like to feel better when walking up the stairs, or Mm -hmm. I would like to be able to get on the floor with my grandkids, because usually that's one of those goals at that age group, we talk about, let's start practicing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a misconception that in order to do those things, you have to take off weight. Yeah. I like people to try to remember what if, what if this, that your body was going to stay this way? What are things that we can do to promote your mobility? What are things we can do to promote your health? And believe me, people of all different shapes and sizes are very capable of being fit. Yep. Because fitness is not a look. Mm-hmm. It is a capability. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we start practicing getting on and off the floor. Or maybe I refer them to a physical therapist to help them with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had someone come in last week that said, I really want to do, um, they were doing mountain biking. And they were saying, well, years ago, I was you know, this many pounds less. And I was doing so great at my mountain biking. And so I think I need to lose that again in order to mountain bike. And I thought, why don't we just start with, if if you're quote unquote, out of shape because you haven't ridden your mountain bike, let's get you back on the mountain bike. And guess what? At first, it's not going to feel that great because you are building back your stamina and that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. 
Does that answer your question? Yes, it totally answers my questions because I think when you get to be a certain age and a certain, and again, I'm just going to say it as a layman, overweight, mm-hmm. you physically know that you are bigger than you've ever been. It's overwhelming. So as a dietitian, I practice in what's called a weight neutral setting, mm. which means your weight could go up, it could go down, it could stay the same. But what we're going to do is work on health promoting behaviors Mm -hmm. and your weight's going to do what it's going to do. So I actually tell people, get rid of your scale. If you are raising kids, get that scale out of your bathroom. Yes. Um, If so, going back to what you were just saying is that is a misconception. And sometimes people feel like they should be losing weight when they're doing this. And then they even hop on the scale maybe and they Mm -hmm. see that their weight hasn't changed and they stop all of their health promoting behaviors. And what we know from research on weight stigma is that when somebody doesn't like themselves, they tend to not take good care of themselves. When somebody likes themselves, they tend to take really good care of themselves. Interesting. So there's so much there's so much yeah. more to this, but mm-hmm. I do talk a lot in my office about weight stigma and really checking our own biases and mm-hmm. how you cannot look at somebody and make us you can make assumptions, but um, you can't look at them and tell how they eat. You can mm-hmm. assume, based yeah. on cultural biases, you can't look at someone and tell what their health is like. Right. And so I love that in our culture now, we're moving away from that mm-hmm. um, that idea that health looks a certain way. Yeah, that's you know? hard. It is hard. One of the reasons I knew what Katie did is because when my sister had her t- child, who's mm-hmm. now eight years old, yeah. Katie promoted something called Lead feeding, is that right it's called? Baby lead weaning. (laughs) So baby lead weaning is just another way to add in solid foods other than breast milk or formula. So, you know, from birth to six months, babies eat breast milk milk or formula, Mm -hmm. and then you start adding in solids. And technically, a solid is anything other than breast milk or formula. Okay. So up until six months, they know how to swallow. That yeah. is that is their um, capability within their mouth structure. So baby led weaning is not supposed to be done unless your baby can sit unassisted. So not in a tripod where they're still using their little hands to, you know, hold themselves up. Not in they a can, bumbo or not, whatever. Not in a whatever those are bumbos, called. Yeah. Yes. Um, so far away from <laughs> I know. what I know, my terminology. <laughs> so they ideally, not ideally, but they must be able to sit unassisted so that they have full control over their ability to stand upright and their neck is straight and they're able to swallow without, um, without you know, being hunched over and choking. Gagging is a normal part of babies learning how to adjust to another texture in their mouth mm-hmm. choking is is not, not part yeah. of it. it so with baby led weaning the idea behind it is that yes babies do it on their own they learn their motor skills they have the choice to pick something up or not mm-hmm. so in the beginning there can be a lot of finger painting a lot of mm-hmm. mush in their hands and tell us what you would put on a on a tray right now for like a six month old that is sitting up and is, is right. in this position right what would you put on there? and i just want to say uh, about baby led weaning uh-huh. now that i've gone through the process with my own kids i did a combination of spoon and baby led weaning because certain things like yogurt for example mm-hmm. Oh, no. Are a yeah. little hard to eat without a spoon, okay? <laughs> but I would load the spoon and hand it, so they would do it. So, so they could still do it. And anyways, so 
with baby led weaning, you cook the food down so that it is so mushy that once it goes into their mouth, it is a puree. So when you're cooking broccoli down, you can put the broccoli there. And what they're going to do is they might, for the first couple of times, not even be able to get it to their mouth. But they should at this point have either the pincer grasp, where it's a you know two little finger grasp, or it's like a shoveling through their hands and get it to their mouth. And they put it in their mouth and they mash it and they learn the back and forth, sending mm. the food back and forth as mm. opposed to just swallowing immediately <laughs> but they send it back and forth okay. yes so broccoli would be an okay really cook down sweet potato yeah. really cook down potato so the idea also is that the babies can sit at the table with the family yes so everybody is communally eating and it's right. not just we're we're gonna feed you separately yeah. while we all eat Over at another at, at another time yeah. and we're just gonna make this focus all be on you and I think that you can be a respectful feeder, whether you are spoon feeding or allowing your child to eat the food on their own. And eventually, spoon feeders of purees will eventually start doing other textures. And it's just a stepping stone. Right. But with baby led weaning, I think what attracted me to it most and why I would teach classes on it is because one of a couple of my values in my life and in my practice are autonomy, Mm -hmm. that I really like the only person in charge of how much food goes into their mouth is the person eating. Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about that. And so sometimes if a caregiver isn't a respectful feeder, they can load too much on the spoon. Mm -hmm. And in my classes I would teach, I would ask the parents to practice feeding each other from a spoon and see how that goes and then wipe their face, you know, how we do to kids' faces and how I know it seems extreme, but how it can be a little disrespectful and how kids grow in their confidence and their ability to eat when they have choices that they get to make. They feel so strong, so competent, and they tend to intrinsically desire to have more foods because there's not pressure, there's not forcing, there's not, okay, you're done now, you've had enough. It's really listening to the kids and starting on that whole intuitive eating process, but from a young age yeah so interesting yeah that i yeah that's having both of you explain it makes sense right but if you just had someone say to you just stick an avocado and some chunks of turkey on her plate she'll be fine walk away you know whatever i didn't get all the information <laughs> I needed. and you Which definitely surprisingly with my sister you definitely need to stay close so this yes. is something where you are watching the capability of the baby right. grow mm-hmm. and you know it takes babies sometimes two to three months to get the hang of eating it's alert it's all of a learning process yeah i think one of the things that we one of our very probably most popular podcasts that we did many many months ago was at the very beginning was we were talking about eating as what happened to sunday dinner and it was Hmm. about us eating as families right and you've talked a lot about family eating and i let's talk about how important that is in the scheme of so much more than food right It is really sending a message to everybody that's participating, the entire family, that this is the time that we're going to come together, we're going to break bread, and we're going to sit down and we're going to have this moment. Mm -hmm. How important is that? Okay, I love that you said that. (laughs) Whenever I go to nutrition conferences and I am reminded of all of the research that says that family meals are so necessary, I get so stressed out. Why? And then I remind myself that it doesn't (laughs) have to be dinner, that it can Mm -hmm. be any mm-hmm. meal or mm-hmm. snack of the day. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important to know mm-hmm. that you can have breakfast with your family. Right. Now with all the kids in sports and whatnot in the afternoon, sometimes family dinners are 
a little bit um, scattered. So eating together as a family, and you made a really good point too that in our current culture, parents are given so much information, almost overload, Mm -hmm. on what to feed. Mm -hmm. But we are not getting this information on how to feed to raise kids that have healthy relationships to food. Mm -hmm. So part of the family meal is absolutely about coming together and communicating as a family. And yes, sharing food, but that could be a McDonald's family meal. That's right. That can be... In, that can be anything. I tend to order out a lot and you can put it all in family style and everyone comes together. So in family meals, it's a little about the food, but it's a lot about the community. Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually speaking of health, the healthiest people that live the longest, healthiest lives are one, people that have access to healthcare, mm-hmm. but two, people that have a community and yes. that mm-hmm. have people around them. Yes. And I think we get overloaded with eating certain types of foods, these recommendations of staying away from some and eating more of others, that we lose that, that in a lot of disordered eating, it takes people away from being with others and eating with others and enjoying food with others. And that is community. I think in society, again, because of conveniences, because of ordering out, which we all love, makes our, our world go around, and especially here in Southern California, we have so much convenience. We somewhat lose the idea of eating for a purpose, which is more than just eating. Yes, yes, yes. And something just to tail back on what you were talking about with maybe potentially emotionally eating or using food for other purposes. On the list of people's coping mechanisms on how to cope with difficult emotions – eating food can also be on there. That it is okay to use food as comfort. Mm -hmm. I think problems occur when maybe that's your only way to comfort yourself, which is rare. Um, But ultimately, I love that. And what goes along with family eating is one one of the best things that parents can do to create a home environment that fosters self esteem, positive body image, positive relationship to food is modeling eating all together Mm -hmm. and eating everything. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of families where they all eat a meal and the one of the parents maybe eats only a salad. Right. Or they everyone gets burritos and the parent has the um the separate food that they're making and that's not really setting a good example for kids. So modeling modeling Mm -hmm. everyone eating eating the food together and not saying anything about it just zip the lips. zip the lips (laughs) not I'm so full or this is so good this is so bad I think after doing this job for so many years and I've seen the devastation and the shame that come from my clients that come in I when I'm giving presentations for families and for anyone who's literally around people the two biggest things that I tell them are don't label foods as good or bad Mm. so don't be talking about that in the home and certainly do not comment on anybody's bodies ever mm-hmm. not oh. not good not bad not you could think you're meaning well yep but it makes everybody else in the room think about their body too and when you're commenting on a food it makes everybody else around you so really you're doing everybody a favor yourself oh. and everyone because they're better able to stay in tune to what is best for them has zero to do what's be- with what's best for anybody else. Right. Interesting. I've, Interesting. I am literally thinking of there's some key moments in my life, and I know you have these too, where someone has commented on not your weight necessarily, but your body shape when you're a teen. And it's not necessarily just mom or grandma. It's like friend of or whatever. And it's like those moments stick out. So I, I'm 
in my 50s. And I can remember a comment that was made to me when I was 14. Absolutely. As, Absolutely. I mean, and especially with the generation that our mothers are in, where right. it was all about cutting calories, reduce your weight, go to jazzercise. You know, these were all the things that they that they had to do in order to... And yet they were giving us the worst food possible. Worst right? food possible. Swanson's Hungry Man right. dinners right. on a tray. like With a tab. You know, we were eating drink. spam and yeah. mac and cheese they from a box. They just didn't know you like they didn't know and they didn't understand but what you're saying is everyone just zip their lip at all costs mind your own business mind you when it comes to other people's body shapes and sizes that is none of none of your business Mm -hmm. that is none of Mm -hmm. your business and you bring up a something interesting um have you heard of the word um or the phrase called body privilege Mm -mm. so body privilege is someone that's in a body that they, they didn't do anything for, per se. Yeah. Um, they're just in this body, right. for, for better or for worse. Yeah. And when they go on an airplane, they don't have to worry about the seating. When they mm-hmm. go to a movie theater, they don't have to worry about the seating. Yeah. They can walk into any type of um, store and purchase clothing. Um, they are have body privilege. Um, anyways, so oh. I would say that you are someone who has body privilege, mm-hmm. right? Um, as do I. And that's... Isn't that the majority of people? Um, no, it's not the majority of people. Um, there are a lot of people who have um, bodies that don't fit in those places. Okay. And so I think our, that's something we talk about in my office a lot is um, there's there's a lot, it's very complicated, you know, mm-hmm. why people's bodies are the shapes that they are and right. why they are the size that they are. Right. Um, we're still, scientists still can't say exactly because it's all different mechanisms of why things are the way they are. And that, I don't know if you're going to like this, but that health is not a moral obligation. Hmm. And I've had to learn this over the years that Hmm. innately humans do want to be healthy. Hmm. And some people are given a different set of, you know, things that make or break their health per se. I'm still thinking about that. Health is not a moral. Health is not a moral obligation. Let me give you an example. Okay. And it may not fit for you. This is what I I go over in my head. So... My agenda cannot be part of what I bring into my office because mm. I wouldn't be doing my job well. Right. I went in to become a dietitian because health, which to me means mental health, spiritual health, physical health, all these things are important to me. And the longer I've been in this business, the more I see how many things have been lined up for me to make that very easy. But part of me being a dietitian was wanting to improve people's quality of life. Mm-hmm. And some people do not have the same health goals. And I feel strongly that I don't want to or need to judge them for not having those health goals, that health is not a moral obligation. Wellness culture that we're swimming in would tell you that it is. And that Mm -hmm. if you're not always focused on your health, then you're bad. Right. And if you are focused on your health, then you're good. Right. And so these are just things that I think about a lot. It's not for me to say that they should, but to me, it is an obligation for yourself to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So again, I just want to start with innately, Mm -hmm. we all, all humans have that drive to want to feel good. So if somebody isn't doing things that they know would make them feel good, what I've found is there's always a reason behind it. And so again, I have the luxury of meeting with humans yeah. one-on-one mm-hmm. in my office where we can go over that. And knowing exactly what is driving that. Exactly, because it's it. different for every person. Sure. And so again, take on point, we can't make assumptions. Sure. Um, 
I want to just, uh, I'm just going to be annoying, but um, I also <laughs> don't use the word, like I said, overweight. I don't use the word obesity right. because it is a stigmatizing word. And mm-hmm. the reason for that, because some people will say, oh, well, it's medical, it's medical, and it's using all the research. But um, the root word of obesity is obesus, which literally means to eat oneself fat. Mm-hmm. And so within that word, when you mm-hmm. use it, you are telling somebody, I believe that the reason you are in that body is because you have eaten too much food. Mm-hmm. And we know now, we've all just talked about it, how there are so many hundreds of thousands of reasons why people are in the bodies that they are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't like to use that mm-hmm. word. And again, with weight stigma, and when people use that word, and people are stigmatized, and we make these assumptions, and then it's even harder for them to take care of their health. And again, they might have other things going on than their physical health. Mm-hmm. And that was what I meant by, it doesn't have to be a moral obligation Mm -hmm. yet most people do want to feel healthy Mm -hmm. and health like i was saying is about physical mental spiritual financial educational you Mm -hmm. know so many different aspects of health that i think in our culture especially diet culture it views health as literally the food you eat the way you move and what your body looks like Mm -hmm. and you know when you look at the big picture Mm -hmm. there's so much more to health than that it's not just about being overweight or underweight it's about feeling good. It's about having mind, body, and spirit that makes you a, a complete individual. Is that right? Yeah, and just to have a, a good quality of life. And I, one other thing you said I want to touch on is um, that I think this is a, a myth that people think is that if you live in a larger body, that that is going to cause you mental distress mm. and have mental health issues. Mm. And I like to challenge that with were you – um, told your whole life that something was wrong with your body and is and did that contribute to you not feeling good mentally mm-hmm. um, also with mental health issues and medications you know there's just so oh, many yeah. you know different things that happen but I like to always question it right just don't you have to question that status quo mm-hmm. these beliefs that we think are the gospel truth and then lo and behold, there's more to it than that. Um, I've found that people are more mentally well. If, again, if I'm going to be a dietitian that doesn't focus on weight, they can become more mentally well doing other all, or, all sorts of other things. And again, their weight may go up, go down, or stay the same. That's not the concern. But there certainly is a cultural message that your weight is going to determine your happiness mm-hmm. and your mental health. Absolutely. And let's flip that. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's flip that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you're raising girls. You have two girls. Yes. Which is scary. With two different bodies and two different eating styles. Oh. Really? (laughs) That's interesting. Yes. And when I first met my husband, our first date, I lost a lot of dates. (laughs) But on our first date, I told him, um, you know, this is what I do for a living. And these are really important things to me. I'm very passionate about it. I never want you to comment on my food. And I also promise to never comment on your food. So for example, if you see me at a party and I'm eating, you know, cake after cake, please don't come up to me to say, do you think you've had enough cake? Because I will continue to eat the cake. And also I live in my own body. So if you ever notice that my body is changing, you do not need to make me aware that my body is changing because I live in it. Thank you. Thank I you can so do that for much. myself. Yes. Thank you. That's so, that's so, so interesting. So that's how we're raising our kids. Before you leave, we ask all of our guests to give us a takeaway gift. Something that we can remember you by. Do you have something for us? So I I thought about a couple things and I told myself I would just go with the one that felt 
like it most pertained to this conversation. Um, I think the thing I will leave you with is when you're out in the world, notice notice how you are thinking about other people's bodies and notice how you are thinking about other people's food and turn that back into yourself and ask yourself questions about what is my relationship to my body? What is my relationship to my food? All bodies, no matter what their shape, size, no matter what, deserve respect. And all bodies deserve consistent, adequate meals and snacks that are satisfying to them, that provide them with enough nourishing food. Do you have a website that they can find you on? I do. What it's is just www.katiebartelsrd.com. Thank Thanks, you. Katie. It was so good seeing you. Uh, that does it for this edition of Two Average Girls. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. Rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Episodes of Two Average Girls are free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the Two Average Girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes. Our editor is Aiden Bloomstein. Our social media producer is Samantha Stone. And original music for Two Average Girls is by Jason Freese.